Let's talk about Twitter. There's mm. a lot of news about Twitter. I am so confused. Yes. So, so I have a blue tick, is, right? And then uh, yes, earlier in the week, it, I think I had a grey tick. Could you explain what's going on with that? Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And hello, my lovely listeners. Welcome back to the um, ICYMI-verse. It's kind of like the metaverse, except instead of you, you know, buying anything or like creating an avatar or really doing anything you would do in the metaverse, you just get to listen to me talk about all the things I'm interested in. So fun. So much like the metaverse. Speaking of fun, someone has been having a lot of it over on Twitter, and by someone, I mean Elon Musk, because truly no one else is having a good time. I'm just going to list a few things that have, you know, really, really been so, so incredibly fun to watch happen over the past 48 hours. Uh, Twitch streamer and leftist himbo Hassan Piker is getting into fights with an 18-year-old. People are flavoring their water with truly astronomical levels of fake sugars while showing off what looks like a hoarder's collection of Stanley reusable cups. Technically, that's a TikTok trend, but the discourse about it on Twitter has been interminable. We are somehow in the year of our Lord and Savior 2023 arguing about the ethics of spoilers on social media again because we have forgotten about the concept of live tweeting. At least three days Three whole calendar days were spent arguing about a single screenshot from the most cursed app on the internet, Hinge. And that doesn't even touch the verification debacle. It might be easy in all of that to forget in the months that have passed just how much of a shit show verification on Twitter has been ever since Elon Musk took over and promised to overthrow the regime of legacy verified accounts. So let me walk you through it really quick. First, check marks were given to anyone who paid $8 a month for Twitter Blue. You might remember that that led immediately to days of people impersonating everyone from LeBron James to pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly. That got slightly rolled back because, you know, apparently stock prices are important and you can't just say insulin is free. Or, you know, some guardrails are put into place to keep you, the average user, from paying $8 and getting to say you were Barack Obama, which solved one problem, sort of. But then another emerged. For months, you could tell exactly how people were verified. All you had to do was click on the check mark next to someone's name to see if they were legacy verified and maybe notable, or if they had just coughed up $8, which led to an epidemic of bullying of Elon Musk's strongest supporters. And we all know that we can't have that. So finally, on April 1st, Elon finally did the thing he had promised to do, kind of, now, if you hover over any checkmark on Twitter, you'll see a little prompt that says the account is either subscribed to Twitter Blue or is a legacy verified account. You might think, okay, you know, solved an issue. No, it just led to everyone and their mother proclaiming from the hilltops that they have not paid for Twitter Blue. The phrase, I haven't paid for Twitter, is the new retweets are not endorsements. But Soon, theoretically, this won't be a concern because Elon is still promising that at some point in the near future, the legacy check marks will disappear altogether. 
why does any of this really matter? Well, like most journalists, I'm obsessed with Twitter and all of its antics. And until I get a co-host to me in, this show is about what I'm obsessed with. But really, Twitter Blue is part of a larger shift towards paid verification models on social media. Meta has introduced one for Facebook and Instagram. Snapchat has one. If TikTok manages to survive in the United States, you bet your ass there'll be a TikTok plus at some point. The question is, does any of this actually matter for the average social media user who probably just wants to see their friend's dog or keep up with makeup trends? To help answer that question, I invited Alex Kantrowitz, the writer behind the big technology newsletter and podcast, onto the show. And after a short break, we'll be chatting about the future of paid verification models on social media and what exactly they have to do with world star hip hop. I hope you all enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7, U.S.-based, live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Am I going to play? People keep asking me for it. I don't know. How much does it cost? $8? I don't know. Something feels wrong, doesn't it? Doesn't quite feel uh, kosher. I like to stay kosher. And I'm back with Alex Kantrowitz, the writer behind the Substack newsletter Big Technology and host of the Big Technology podcast. Alex's work has appeared in just a whole host of publications, including our own Slate magazine. And most recently, he's written newsletters on the future of paid verification models on social media and the consequences of the homogenization of social media, both of which we'll be discussing today. But before we do that, hello, Alex. Welcome to the show. Hey, Rachel. Great to be here. I'm so excited. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) One of the first questions I usually ask all my guests is, what is your very first internet memory? Okay, that's such a great question. Here's my first (laughs) internet memory. I'm 36, 
And I remember I was probably five or six years old. So we're talking about the early 90s. And I walked into my parents' room and there was a computer there. And on the computer, there was a square window. We had windows, of course, because that's what everybody had back then. And in the window was this thing called America Online with like six different boxes you could click. One for news, four for things I don't remember, and another one (laughs) that I definitely do because it was games. So I initially thought the internet was for games. And of course, like that's become a huge part of the internet. But I couldn't believe that our previously dumb computer had become smart and interactive (laughs) and lo and behold (laughs) you know the 30 years after that have been pretty interesting interesting is definitely a word for what's happened in the 30 years (laughs) terrifying exciting invigorating Uh, mm -hmm, (laughs) terrifying mm -hmm. again i was like terrifying is where i keep returning to (laughs) i mean speaking of some sort of low-level terror we're here to talk about verification um, so I figured I'd start off by asking you what your Twitter verification story is. How did you first get verified? So I first got verified when I was working for AdAge as like a cub reporter in the early 2010s. And as many reporters, this is their verification story. So this is how it goes. They circulate a spreadsheet around yep. uh, the office. You put your information in, they send it to a Twitter rep. And next thing you know, there's a blue check on your account, which to me back then was like the coolest freaking thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Having just gotten on that spreadsheet and I think the year of like 2021, it was still pretty exciting. Unfortunately, I was like, I've made it. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you see that, you're like, because you know what comes along with it, right? It's not just an ego thing. It's going to help supercharge your account because people immediately, at least before what's happened recently, would see it as an authority which means they'd be more likely to share your posts, more likely to pay attention to them. And all of a sudden, you were speaking with a megaphone on Twitter, which is why people were so eager to get verification. And for a long time, if you looked at the bios of people like Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, or Kayvon Bekupor, uh, former chief product officer on Twitter, or take your pick of Twitter executive, they would always have this disclaimer in their bio, I don't handle verification, because people were just <laughs> inundated with requests to be verified. And eventually, they just couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah, I mean, kind of in that line, I saw that you told BuzzFeed News that you were planning on subscribing to Twitter Blue, though that was before they basically blacklisted Substack, which is where your newsletter is hosted. So I'm wondering if Twitter Blue is going to be part of your verification story. So I am paying for Twitter Blue right now, and it's Mm -hmm. extremely embarrassing, but I'll tell you why. (laughs) Okay, so I run Big Technology, which is an independent newsletter and podcast, and it's just me. And so every new reader and every new listener that comes in the door is a huge deal for the business. And I have to do whatever I can to make sure that I reach as many people as possible. Now, one of the things that Elon Musk has offered, if you pay for verification on Twitter, is increased distribution in the For You page. And for me, that opportunity to reach new readers, while many publications decide not to pay for verification, is a golden opportunity to be able to get that added distribution. And from that standpoint, to pay $8 a month is worth it, blue check mark or not. I don't really care about the blue check mark. You know, I've had it for about 10 years now, and, you know, good riddance if it's gone. It's also very, changed very much from those early days where it would help you amplify your message. Now it signals something else. It signals kind of that you're a um, follower of Elon Musk and you don't think quite critically about what's happening with the business. It's not really the message that I want to be sending. 
But the fact that I can get that at a distribution is huge. So, of course, I'm going to pay for it. Now, you mentioned the second half of this, which is I said publicly, hey, I'm going to pay for it. It's a good opportunity for the business. My newsletter is on Substack. For those listening and they don't know what Substack is, it's a newsletter platform that we use to send you emails. Within a week of paying, becoming a customer for Elon, thanks Elon, he gets into a feud with Substack and blocks Substack links. And even when you search Substack in Twitter search, you end up getting newsletter. And so that means that basically he's blocking distribution. So retweets, likes, quote tweets, you can't do that with Substack links anymore, which would be devastating for anyone, especially in the early stages of their uh, Substack development who are trying to grow their newsletters. I think it's petty and wrong, and maybe he's taken some of those restrictions off at this point, uh, but still a terrible look for Twitter and makes me re- somewhat regret paying for that <laughs> subscription. It is the most incredibly petty thing I've ever seen Elon do, which is really saying something given his general past. The fact that he went so far as to, yeah, when you search Substack on Twitter to replace the word Substack with newsletter, there are just things I didn't realize Twitter had the capability to do or never thought they would use the capability to do. And I'm I'm just like, how did that meeting go? Who was like, okay, Mr. Musk, we'll change it to newsletter in the search. I also feel like that meeting had to be even more awkward because it didn't, the change didn't even last that long. Like if you now search Substack, it just turns out Substack. So it's made even pettier that he had this happen for 48 hours or however long it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it is strange how things have developed under him, you know, inside Twitter. And you would expect that somebody would of his stature would be doing a little bit more with the platform. I think it's personally regressed under him. And I think that like his decision to come in and try some new things after the long run of Twitter 1.0, quote unquote, had a lot of potential. But unfortunately, it seems like it's turning into a trash fire and Twitter 2.0. So really, uh, for me, I mourn the potential of what, what this thing could have been. And objectively, you can't look at it and say, oh, this is much better under him. Yes, undoubtedly. Um, I kind of want to take a step back into Twitter 1.0 and kind of get into the history of verification, both on Twitter and on social media writ large. Twitter verification emerged out of a 2009 lawsuit that was filed by American baseball player Tony La Russa over an account that was impersonating him, which I think is a very instructive anecdote in terms of how much thought Twitter has ever put into the verification process. Changes to the system always seemed very real active rather than proactive to me. Would you say that that's true? Oh my God. Twitter has been the most reactive company you've ever seen because (laughs) they never used to do anything from a place of offense. It was always defensive. They built this amazing timeline. Mark Zuckerberg famously said it was like a bunch of people crashed a clown car into a gold mine. Basically (laughs) the idea was, well, you built this timeline, it works, but Everything you've done with it since has been ridiculous, and yet you're still making money because it's such a powerful original idea and attracted a network effect that made it something that was very difficult to disrupt. So the idea that Twitter since has done very much of anything with real planning or intentionality is wrong. It seems to have always flown by the seat of its pants, always decided to do things spur of the moment, never had consistent internal policies, never really spoken coherently about those internal policies, 
It's had a head of product basically every single year, a new one, until uh, Kayvon Bekipor, who was there for a while, stayed for like three, four or five years, something like that, um, and then was en- ended up being fired by Parag Agarwal, the placeholder CEO that ended up getting fired himself once Elon took over. So I can't tell you uh, with a straight face that verification was a well-thought-out policy. It just kind of <laughs> happened, which is just the case of, with almost everything on Twitter. Yeah, and verification has gone through some real kind of changes since that 2009 moment, there would be these kind of turnbacks where people could apply for it and then they would get swamped with requests and then they would take it away and then people could apply for it and then they get swamped with requests and be like, actually, never mind. We don't want to give you that capability anymore. You have to find the secret person at Twitter to email or the spreadsheet to get on to get verified. Exactly. Yeah. There was always like starts and stops and even still, you could probably find your way in if you needed to. Uh, It has always been a messy program. And right now, I think that continues to apply. (laughs) It's almost as messy as it was back in the day. Like what's funny to me about Twitter Blue, which you can access now if you have a credit card and a phone number, is that I feel like we're back in the pre-2009 moment in that a blue check mark on Twitter means very little. And what it does mean is, as you said, kind of cringe. (laughs) Yes. Well, there's an interesting thing, Rachel, that's happened Uh, as this verification gets rolled out to everyone, which is that Twitter has now created a second form of verification, the profile badge that you can get if you're an organization. So for instance, Mm -hmm. the members of the All In podcast have a special All In badge and members of Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm, have a special A16Z badge. And even Barack Obama has a special badge next to his blue checkmark. And Elon said, looking at Obama's badge, it's like secondary badge, that this will be helpful to suss out whether someone's impersonating him or not. And mm-hmm. someone in the replies was just like, congrats, bro, you just invented verification. Like this was the <laughs> original plan for it. So mm-hmm. he's made this whole show of democratizing access to the blue check mark while making a second, even more elitist tier of verification badge that's available if you pay some sum to Twitter which I just find ridiculous. Yeah, and the sum is wild. The organizations that you mentioned, I was looking at the fee structure, it's $1,000 a month for organizations and you only get in that bundle five people that you can give one of those like special branded badges to, which seems like a racket to me. Yes, that's the right way to look at it. (laughs) A racket. (laughs) And it also just seems bad in general to me and to most of Twitter's user base in that less than 300,000 people have signed up for Twitter Blue, which is significantly less than 1% of Twitter's like daily monetizable users, which is how they say who's active online. But I'm not a business genius. I wouldn't even necessarily say I'm a tech genius. My main domain is internet culture. And so I'm, I kind of think, am I missing something? Is there any way that Twitter Blue actually becomes a boon to Twitter rather than the embarrassment that it currently seems like it is? Highly unlikely. It's always okay. possible <laughs> because you never know. A lot of people really love Twitter the service. And for instance, if Twitter Blue was necessary to use Twitter, you might see much higher number of signups than you have today. But as it stands, Twitter Blue is... A program that really makes sense to people like me, right? Professional content creators, media professionals who want to stand out. If you think about the benefits of Twitter Blue, it allows you to write longer tweets. It allows you to edit tweets. It allows you to post longer videos. It shows you top articles. And most of this is 
stuff that's actually really interesting to people who create content, like professional content creators, this stuff is good. In fact, I'm surprised, well, not surprised because I understand the full context of a story, but it is interesting that media professionals are like, yeah, we don't need this. It's like, oh, it's actually something that's been built for you and might actually help you get your message across. And $8 a month isn't that expensive if you're doing this as a career. But if you think about why this has struggled to take hold with the broader user base, it's because you have to look at the context of who actually creates the content on Twitter. So before Twitter was sold to Elon Musk, Twitter found that less than 10% of its users created 90% of its content. I'll say it again. Less than 10% of all people on Twitter create 90% of the content, which means that you have 90% of the people consuming what those 10% create almost entirely. And that's always been the law of social media. Like typically 1% create, 9% spread, and 90% will consume. And so if you think, as we just said, that this is something that's actually best sold to professional media creators, well, now you take your total addressable market from 100% of Twitter to some fraction of that 10% of people that create content for Twitter. Now, the 10% isn't all professional. You have compulsive creators and all that stuff, compulsive tweeters, amateur tweeters, and people who are tweeting for their business, I guess, to do branded stuff, and also small communities within the app where people really take enjoyment from participating in a conversation there. But when you have 90% of your people not really participating in the content creation process, well, they're not going to want a verification badge. They're not going to want longer tweets. They're not going to want longer videos. They're not going to want to edit tweets because they don't tweet. So if you think about the struggles of this business, that's really the central point. Why is Elon built a product geared to professional content creators? But that's not his user base. His user base are effectively professional content consumers who don't post. Wow. Elon not understanding his consumer base. I, I, I couldn't have guessed. I, I need to take a break to deal with the shock of this moment. Um, after we come back, Alex and I will be talking about what paid verification models look like on other platforms like Meta and Snapchat and potentially on TikTok. And we'll also be talking about whether we are exiting the free trial era of social media. Hi, y'all. If you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. We're talking all about subscription models on today's show. And I am not joking when I say that subscribing to Slate Plus is one of the ways that this show keeps going. I see why my would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including this one. You'll also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, the Waves, Big Mood, Little Mood, Dear Prudence, truly so much bonus content. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus. If you want to get good reach like you used to have on Instagram, you're going to have to start paying for it. Basically, Instagram's introducing MetaVerified, where you can pay $15 and be verified on Instagram. But the part that really bothered me is that they're saying increased visibility and reach. So I feel like this is just them manipulating people that are feeling a little desperate and having really bad Instagram engagement right now to start paying $15 a month just so they can maybe have increased reach on Instagram. There's this shift happening in social media right now. Um, you wrote in your piece about paid verification, which is that 
After long relying on ordinary users for content, social media companies are giving up on them. Regular people either post too infrequently, are too boring, or both, and now they're being pushed aside. And I was hoping you could say a little bit more about that and how paid verification fits into that sort of like pushing aside. Yes. So question for you. So Mm -hmm. you have an Instagram account? I do. Tell me what's happened. And maybe you're like an all-star on Instagram. I feel I consider myself an an average Instagram user, maybe Mm -hmm. somewhat below. What's happened to the distribution of the posts that you put in the feed? Or do you even post in your feed? I do post in my feed maybe once a month. And it's gone down, Mm -hmm. I would say, like a fair amount. I I don't think most of my friends see what I post on my grid anymore. And even then, I have to kind of tailor it. I have to make sure there's like a selfie in the front, even though mostly I'm posting um, shit posts. Yeah, exactly. So look, this is what's happened, I think, across the board to people is, I like how you call it grid posts. I guess that's the professional term to create it. I'm like feed (laughs) posts, whatever. But people that are posting to Instagram directly have seen their reach go down Tremendously. I think that the engagement I'm getting is about 25% of what it used to be, which is a good proxy for the amount of people that see these posts. And the reason is, is because the timeline on Instagram has displaced regular people's posts with influencer posts, but not just influencer posts. It's really replaced the typical Instagram experience with reels. And with reels, what you're seeing is think about that ratio that I just shared with about Twitter, that 10% of the users are creating 90% of the content with reels. It's even lower. Like most people are watching reels, they're not making reels. Most people are watching TikTok, they're not making TikToks. And of the people that are creating, most of them are influencers, professional influencers or creators. Very rarely do you see a post from an average person go viral on these apps anymore. Except, and this is one of my favorite, is like when you have a dad who like accidentally records like his chin and then posts it to TikTok (laughs) and people just comment like crazy and you've seen these and -hmm. it just does millions and millions of views, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of the things that makes social media so exciting is people have a hilarious, weird sense of humor. So what happens is that like as more professionalized content takes over these feeds, right, and it's happening on Instagram, it's happening on Facebook, it's happening on TikTok, it's happening on YouTube then you have people who wanted to reach their friends, you and I, who want, and we're professional creators anyway, but maybe not on Instagram. I don't know. I don't do any like, you know, brand sponsorships on my Instagram. No, yeah. no. I'm in fact fairly sure I'm not allowed to. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, I mean, I could, but um, I think that the advertisers see pictures of me and they're like, no, no, we're not doing any, any <laughs> modeling like, things oh. with him. So, <laughs> so, but that being said, so like the regular, regular users whose content, you know, used to reach their friends, they're just not anymore. And there's this, um, s- snowball effect that happens where you post on Instagram, you don't reach your friends. Next time you're like, should I put the effort in to like filter or organize or write a caption and tag people? Or should I just not do anything or maybe post a story, maybe not even do that? The incentive goes down because your point is to reach people. If you're not reaching people and the professional influencers and creators have taken your place, what's the point? In some way, you're shouting into a pillow. And so what happens is regular people then post even less, even less, and professional creators post even more. And then you end up having this flip of the feed, which used to be almost all friends and family with some interests to interest, but mostly professional creators, influencers, et cetera, et cetera. And that's sort of where we find Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook today. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense for the kind of tenor, I feel like, of the internet conversation right now, which is there's this massive, I feel like, 
annoyance or ire or irritation towards influencers as if there's something that is new to us versus the fact that platforms are now prioritizing them in a way that I don't think anyone ever expected, but makes sense from a monetary perspective. You can't really monetize average users, but you can monetize influencers like no one's business. So I was just speaking with Kevin Sistrom, who is the founder of Instagram, on uh, my mm-hmm. big technology podcast. We were met up in Austin at South by Southwest. And I said, well, any regrets, man? And he goes, yeah, like I made this app for people to be able to filter and post their photos, make them look good for the average person. And he regrets the fact that it's gone so heavy into influencers. And it's almost like the internet has shown us what people really want. There's this concept of revealed preference and stated preference. Stated preference is what, you know, if you're asked what you'd like to see, you'd say, hi, you know, high-minded things, magazines, you know, <laughs> television that educates me. And then you're in your feed and, you know, what are you watching on TikTok? You know, <laughs> yeah, people trash. fighting in restaurants and, you know. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right, exactly. World Star. Why do you think World Star is so popular? That is a a revealed preference. It, World Star isn't the thing that people say, that's what I want, but it's the thing they gravitate to. And then the algorithms say, oh, people love World Star. And next thing you know, it's one of the biggest accounts in the world. And so, yeah, that's that's what happens is that the platforms have a decision. You know, they can modulate, right? And do you want to put all your gas behind the accounts that attract the most views and engagement without regard for whether you find that to be nutrient-rich engagement or not? Or do you want to sort of use your tools to say, we're maybe going to have a less addictive app, but we're going to have content for friends and family, maybe some world star, and then whatever else you want to throw in, (laughs) right? A, A mix. And by and large, you know, you see that now you have Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok, and they all have the same product. And because they're in this fierce competition, if there ever was a real consideration of, hey, what should we be prioritizing here? Because they all heat the content on their feeds. You know, that's gone. And now it's all just like, how do we have the most time per day per user? And one thing that's really telling is that TikTok today has more time per user per day than Facebook ever did, ever in its history. And tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, just in my average life, that tracks. I don't think I've ever spent as much time on Facebook as I do on TikTok on a regular and consistent basis. Yeah, same. Yeah. Um, A few weeks ago, Meta announced their own paid verification model, which will cost like $12 a month. And that'll get you, you know, the blue check, plus added customer service on Facebook and Instagram, which basically means that if you get hacked you actually get to talk to a human about getting your account back, which reminded me how you now have to pay on Twitter for two-factor authentication over text. And this feels like a protection racket to me. But you wrote, let's see these paid social subscriptions for what they are, which is a product for a new social media era serving those still posting. And I was hoping you could say a bit more about that. Should I not feel like it's a protection racket? <laughs> I mean, it is, but it's also who are the, who's it protecting, right? Yeah. And if we think about who's still posting, well, who is? It's the professional creators. It's the influencers and the media companies and the brands, for instance, that are getting content out there and, is, and using it, you know, doing in back of the envelope ROI calculations to decide what they should post and what they shouldn't post. And so, like, people have viewed this as a fee on 
the everyday user or the end of free social media. I don't view it that way. I view it as these platforms seeing what their user base really is. The people that are creating the content are professionals. And so this verification thing is a product for those professionals. The things that you listed out in terms of what they get to use if they sign up for this, things like customer service, things like the verification, and there's also added distribution in the feed, just like Twitter. Average users don't need that. Average users don't want that. I guess there are different circumstances when you use Facebook, but I've been on Facebook for a very long time. And even when I've been in the most heated flame wars, I've never thought about like, how can I dial customer service and get this person banned? I just block them. But if I lose my account and I'm making, let's say a thousand, two thousand, five thousand dollars a month from that account, oh, I need to call somebody and get that sorted really quickly. In that case, what Facebook is doing is building a product geared for the professional creators on the platform. And I expect they're going to make use of it. I expect so too. I do kind of feel like it's the end of something though. Not necessarily of social media, but it does feel like the end of the way social media was promised to us when it was first coming out. Oh yes. What would you say the promise was? To connect with your friends or Mm -hmm. to at least connect with like-minded people. Not necessarily just the people in your life. There was always this thought that geographic borders no longer mattered because we had social media. But at least you're going to be connected to people that you were seeking out. Correct. And I think that you're totally right that these platforms have gone from connection platforms to entertainment platforms, all of them. And I had a quote from Adam Oseri in my story talking about how Instagram is no longer a photo sharing app, which I think is code for saying it's not about you posting your pictures anymore. It's about you logging onto the feed and getting entertained by all these great people that we have who've decided to build businesses on the platform and are going to pay us $12 a month. So they can have customer service. It's like (laughs) the CEO of TikTok, when he went to speak in front of Congress, he gave two stats. I just think the second one was actually more important than the first. The first was 150 million users in the US of TikTok. Second one, 5 million businesses on TikTok. And that's Mm -hmm. the key. And if you're Instagram, right, you probably have something in that neighborhood just in the US, probably more. And if you think about it, like that 5 million, that's your total addressable market for the $12 a month. And if you get like 50% sign up, I mean, Facebook is making billions per quarter, but it still could be a meaningful addition to your revenue in a moment where you're really scrounging for every bit of margin you can get. That makes a lot of sense. And you saying that social media moving from a place of connection to a place of entertainment is really smart and kind of reaffirms the thought that I've had, which is that TikTok kind of seems to be the uh, harbinger of doom in this regard, in that it feels a lot like the first platform that really fully committed to the idea of we are entertaining you, not based on what you say you want, but based on all of these things Mm -hmm. that we're measuring. And yet of the apps that we've talked about so far, It doesn't have a paid verification system. And I'm wondering if you think that's on the horizon. And if it is, how it would affect TikTok? Oh, yeah. I I think there will be a TikTok plus or something like that, without a doubt. But I think what they're trying to do right now is just survive in the United States. So that might be uh, hampering their product roadmap. But Rachel, I'd like to give you like the perspective that the platforms would share. And I'm kind of curious what you think about it. So what they would say to what I've been saying about how this is all professional feeds is social engagement now happens when people share the content. So the content sparks that connection with your friend and you send it to your friends and then you talk about it. You know, for instance, I have like 15 reels of baby pigs uh, sitting in my 
Instagram inbox that my girlfriend mm-hmm. sent. And so they, <laughs> they say, okay, actually the new social media is you talking with her in the DMs and the pigs being the spark to that conversation. So maybe I've been too hard on them. What do you think about that? Are you buying that? Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm buying that that's how it's working. I do engage more with my friends now through sharing social media content and through sharing TikTok links specifically, rather than making my own original tweets. I would never Mm -hmm. make a TikTok, not my thing. But it also just reminds me of how much of the worst parts of social media are conversations started by piling on other pieces of social media content. And yes. that's that's great engagement, but it feels like it's just turned the internet into this like Ouroboros where we're just eating ourselves. It's a great point. Like a lot of my group chats that we talk when we talk about Twitter uh, mm-hmm. and someone drops a tweet in, it's never, oh, that was a really insightful tweet. Let's all learn from this. <laughs> it was like, I can't believe they put that on the internet. Yep. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. No, just before this call, I was complaining about the current Twitter discourse, which is about dating in New York. And it's oh. lasted for two days at this point because of something someone posted from like a TikTok influencer posted on Twitter. And I'm over it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think I saw that that post. Okay. I'll admit like my TikTok feed is all like, well, not all, but... I get a decent amount of New York dating horror stories oh, and I just can't look away. It's very interesting. It's so good. Yes. I mean, I can't look away either. I'm part of the problem. I love a New York dating horror story because yes. I'm dating in New York and it's mostly a horror <laughs> story. So I yeah. can see it. <laughs> uh, well, I'm recently retired from that situation, but I have to say that um, <laughs> it's a struggle out there, yeah. people. So uh, hang in bless there. Bless you. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> In one of your newsletters, you mentioned Snapchat Plus is one of the most successful paid verification models, and it has 2.5 million users, which is significantly more than Twitter Blue. But that's still less than 1% of Snapchat's user base. And I'm just thinking about the potential for paid models not going beyond 1% of the users on a platform. How do you think that's kind of going to change social media as we experience it beyond what we're talking about right now, which is that we're all reacting to things rather than talking to each other. Right. So there's a couple possibilities here and I'm waiting for like one social media company to try it. And maybe it's a smaller one where they see they're just not getting a lot of interaction from their paid subscribers and they just make the whole thing paid. Like could Twitter make you pay like $8 a month for Twitter blue, but like $1 a month to use the service. A lot of people would pay because they wouldn't want to give it up. And that makes sense to me. There's a lot of people that pay to use LinkedIn and it's a little bit different, but a lot of people use Twitter for their jobs. So potentially like being informed that way is crucial. So I think that we could end up seeing that And I also think that at the end of the day, like I've long been an advocate for relying more on subscription revenue than advertising revenue for these platforms, because when they go advertising, they just go a little bit too far on the data collection side. And that's sort of been their downfall. So maybe asking people to pay and also doing advertising, you know, but just with limited targeting would be a good solution. But as social media has changed It doesn't seem like those paid programs would have as much adoption as they could have in the past, which means we're just likely going to see more reliance on advertising. And these networks, again, they're moving to entertainment. They start to look more like TV networks where they program. They pay influencers to post. They pay influencers for exclusivity. So you could only get the Kylie Jenner show on TikTok, just for an example. And then they sell advertising in the breaks. I mean... 
at the end of the day, that's where it seems to be gravitating toward. And YouTube has done a pretty good job of this, right? So this is kind of the YouTube model and TikTok changed the format and everybody is chasing after TikTok, which means that like eventually we'll probably see a merge of, of all this, you know, coming together and having, you know, similar business models, similar programming, similar advertising, and then one might win. And that would be really interesting. For how much it kind of deeply offends me, like the idea of paying for social media, it reminds me a lot of digital media, what's happening with social media right now, which is that it was free. Everyone expected it to be free. We got really used to it being free. And now there's an attempt to kind of claw back money through subscription models, which are working for some companies. Slate has a robust one. Um, Mm -hmm. But the real draw of them is to not have to listen to ads like on shows like this one. And this all kind of comes down to this idea that we think things on the internet should be free. I feel like I'm talking myself into thinking that maybe social media shouldn't actually be free. (laughs) Well, look, I think that, yeah, I think some combination of free and paid makes sense. Like I said before, I always hope that if you pay you end up like not needing all these granular ad targeting categories, which has led to the creepy factor with many of these companies. But I think I agree with you 100%. Like what you're talking about, in my opinion, is the story of the internet where you get free and then you enjoy the product and then the company eventually needs to make money and you start paying Mm -hmm. for it. I mean, there are so many products that I'm using today that I was using the free version and then Mm -hmm. ended up, all right, well, I'm going to need this now. So now I'm paying for it. And I wonder, you know, I I hope I have a lot of internet usage left because I'll be using the internet for the rest of my life and I'm not ready to die. And I'm like, (laughs) well, how long am I going to, how much money am I going to end up paying for like Google? Like my, Mm -hmm. my Gmail bills already like a couple dollars a month. My Apple iCloud is a couple dollars a month. My AI bill. I was doing the math. It's like more than $500 a month between Grammarly and ChatGPT and Otter, which I use for transcription and MidJourney and Dolly. And I'm just like, oh God, you know, and all these things I got, you know, hooked in because, oh, well, this is a cool free product that can make what I make my life a lot better, make my, my work a lot more efficient and it's great. And then next thing you know, you look up and you're like, how did that happen? That's that's a lot of money for something I used to not pay for. And yeah, maybe that's what's happening with social media as well. Yeah, it feels like we're exiting the free trial period of social media. Exactly. But okay, just to push back on this a little bit, I think that (laughs) if you're looking to consume social media content and not create it, you have a long path ahead of you where you're not going to be paying. And how great is that? We'll take some of your data along the way. Yeah, I was like, you're not paying in money, (laughs) but you are paying in data. (laughs) I don't know. I personally, I mean, you know, it's sort of like, well, famous last words, but I don't care. Like, take my data, whatever. All right, that is the show. I will be back in your feed on Saturday, so please subscribe. It is the best way to never miss an episode. While you're subscribing, subscribe to Slate Plus. It's how we keep the show going. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, what's going on with Twitter right now? And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of audio. See you online or on free Twitter for now.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.